0: This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. We're just a few weeks away from the U.S. election for president. and I thought I'd have a little bit of fun this week and call this our pre-election special. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm highly apolitical, so it's somewhat ironic that I would have a pre-election special. But since I'm a Rule Breaker and I like to have fun, I just like the title. And We're going to go there a little bit. I'm not going to talk about who I think you should vote for. I'm not going to tell you who I'm going to vote for, although I can tell you who I'm not voting for. If you're a listener of this podcast and you were around in early August, you'll already know. Uh, But what I do want to do is talk about the greater significance of it. Uh, It's an election that, for the last couple of years, seems to have been on the minds of the media and presumably all of us who are reading the articles really for almost two years now. The phenomenon that has been pointed out in America where Christmas starts earlier every year, I'd even say these days Halloween starts earlier every year these days, I find the same thing seems to be true of the presidential election. Now, I personally don't put that much stock in it. I don't think it's that significant an event in my life or yours this is my own personal view so for us to be covering it day to day and caring so much about it for low these 2 years now and it hasn't been pretty either so it's been i think it's been a tough couple of years for this country and if you're feeling that a little bit then maybe this pre-election special will be a bit of a balm for you a little opportunity to relax and just think Beyond November 2016. In fact, beyond November 2016, we're going to start in 1836 this week because there was a wonderful novel that was written by a very well known British author whose name you'll instantly recognize when I mention it. It was the first of his many novels written in 1836. And I'm going to read a little bit from one of my favorite chapters of that novel in this podcast. Now, I'm not going to read that much, but this is a passage that comes back to me every four years, right in line with the political cycle. And I didn't have a podcast four years ago, so here I am now for the first time getting to share it with you. It's going to be a pleasure. And I'm going to start right there. So we're going to cover a number of things in this podcast, uh, but I want to start with The Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. His first novel, a comic novel, Pickwick, the protagonist, um, is. An older gentleman with spectacles. He's pretty well to do, and he is the founder and eternal president of the Pickwick Club, for those of you who know the novel. And he and a few members of the Pickwick Club make a point of going out into the English countryside from time to time and having experiences to learn more of the world and then report back on them through the Pickwick papers. So, Charles Dickens, who was only 24 years of age when he wrote this novel in serial form, um, is, of course, the real star of the show, but it's all through the Eyes of Pickwick, and also, and not even to a lesser extent, his valet or valet, Sam Weller. His valet, who is very comic, and really the beauty of this novel, and why I enjoyed reading it a few decades ago when I first read it, is just the great comedic characterizations, which Dickens proved himself so well at doing throughout his whole life, but it was very much uh, on display with his very first novel, intentionally a comic novel from an author, of course, who later in his life would often write very serious dramas. So if you were to go to chapter thirteen um, of the Pickwick Papers, you would encounter Pickwick and Sam Weller visiting the town of Eton'swill. Now, in modern day parlance, most people who know this novel better than I, the The academics, the critics, would say this was Sudbury back in the day, if you care. Um, But he's in Eatonsville, and he encounters a town divided. So I'm going to share with you over the course of this podcast three paragraphs at different points from this novel. But here's the first one. It appears then that the Eatonsville people, like the people of many other small towns, considered themselves of the utmost and most mighty importance and that every man in Eaton'sville, conscious of the weight that attached to his example, felt himself bound to unite, heart and soul, with one of the two great parties that divided the town, the Blues and the Buffs. Now, the Blues lost no opportunity of opposing the Buffs, and the Buffs lost no opportunity of opposing the Blues. And the consequence was that, whenever the Buffs and Blues met together at public meeting, town hall, fair, or market, disputes, and high words arose between them. With these dissensions, it's almost superfluous to say that everything in Eaton's will was made a party question. If the Buffs proposed to new skylight the marketplace, the Blues got up public meetings and denounced the proceeding. If the Blues proposed the erection of an additional pump in the high street, the Buffs rose as one man and stood aghast at the enormity. There were blue shops and buff shops, blue inns, and buff inns. There was a blue aisle and a buff aisle in the very church itself. Before I say something slightly more important about that paragraph, I would like to point out that Dickens properly uses the original meaning of the word enormity in that paragraph. It's just the pedant in me can't not point this out, but you'll often hear people talk about the sheer enormity of, let's say, the United States of America. And what they think they're saying is the enormousness, the size. But really, if you go back and look at the original meaning of the word enormity before it got corrupted by a lack of understanding, it was the great wickedness. And so I certainly wouldn't want to talk about the great, the the enormity of the United States of America. So anyway, Dickens, when he says, rose as one man and stood aghast at the enormity, uh, he nails it. Ah, but let's talk about why I'm really sharing that paragraph with you. So, what I love about that paragraph is to me, it satirizes and sadly often describes what happens. In party politics, which is that you have one side and then you have a second side, and all the people on the one side rise as one against whatever's happening on the other side. And this is the nature, I think, of party politics. And in the United States of America, and we're not the only country in the world like this, we have a fairly mature set of parties. And those of us who don't count ourselves in either one of them have probably felt marginalized over the course of the last few decades. And I'm one of those people. But I think that. If you do feel marginalized or you stand outside it, it's comic with Dickens to look at the blues and the buffs, at the Democrats and the Republicans, and see how they behave and see how it's really just the nature of the beast itself. Uh, So, a fair amount of what I want to talk about today is how much I love business, because business, which you and I get to invest in as stock market investors, which is the primary focus of Rule Breaker investing, business is a win-win-win. In contrast to the city that I've grown up in, my native city, Washington, D.C., where, since my birth, since my early days, and every day, I see the blues and the buffs go at each other, in contrast to a system that pits people against each other, business only works when an entrepreneur starts something, the business ends up selling something, a product or a service, and at a price that people are voluntarily willing to pay for as customers. And those customers end up providing prosperity back to the best businesses because they buy from them repeatedly. And they pay, and here's the key they pay above the costs of the business. They allow the business to earn a profit. And businesses themselves then use those profits in part to have successful stocks that you and I, as investors, can buy and hold. So we have an opportunity to get a free ride if we're just the investor part of it. But let's go back and look through that again. We've got an entrepreneur and employees working hard to please people. They're competing against others, trying to outdo um, their fellow businesses at pleasing you and me at prices that we're willing to pay. We have you and me, the customers. We're buying from this one, not that one. We're choosing this this product, not that one, because we value it. Uh, No one's forcing our hand to buy anything, in most cases, in the United States of America today. And when we do, we're paying above the costs, and those businesses then earn profits, which they can use to reinvest in themselves, pay dividends back to shareholders, and ultimately, the value of their stock, which we hope will rise over time, is driven by their ability to earn and grow profit. It's a beautiful system. And yet, as is often said, it's not a great system, but it just so happens to be better than any of the other much worse systems that have thus yet been invented by humanity in terms of the best way to govern ourselves. Capitalism, when done well, uh, and it is done so well, so often, and we should remind ourselves of that. All the companies that we talk about on this podcast are examples, exemplars of doing business well and right, and uh, and they really are the underpinnings of our society, at least in my opinion. So, during a time in which it would seem to be all about the blues or the buffs, who's going to win? Uh, I've said sometimes in the past, I believe that politics makes us worse. You end up pitting countrymen against countrymen when I think we all share so much more in common than really we feel apart. And I think we need to hear that and be reminded of that in 2016. You know, four years ago, I attended a conference called the Conscious Capitalism Conference in Austin, Texas. It's held every year. In fact, my brother is there this week as we speak. I'm just back here in Alexandria doing my podcast. But Adam Braun, who's the founder of an organization called Pencils of Promise, which The Motley Fool has done some good stuff with in the past, Adam stood up in front of the crowd and said something I thought was wonderful. He said he doesn't like it when people call Pencils for Promise a, quote, non-profit, end quote, or a not-for-profit. He doesn't like that. He thinks of his organization as a for, in this case, for purpose. And I like that a lot, because I don't tend to frame things up in terms of for-profit and not-for-profit too much. I think that what really unites most organizations is a purpose. Whether it's the Motley Fool, whose purpose is to help the world invest better, whether it's the purpose of the organization that you might work for, or whether it's Adam's Pencils for Promise, every organization has a purpose. And my hope for every organization is, when possible, and it's not when possible, to earn a profit in pursuit of its purpose. Uh, I realized that sometimes, especially when I was going through college, it seemed like for-profit corporate was greedy and wrong, and, and you know lots of my peers in college would not have been voting for that. And by contrast, and somewhat Dickensian comic contrast in my mind, not-for-profit, so-called. Was thought of as really a wonderful, wholesome thing, save the world, you know, altruistic, and all the really good people go to work for those. Well, now, 30 years removed from college, I can say with confidence that if every not for profit or for purpose, in Adam Braun's words, organization could earn a profit, I wish for it that it would. For the dynamics that we just described. In fact, if you think about the difference between owning a house and renting, you'll recognize where I'm headed here. I think when you are for-profit, you have shareholders, they might be private or you might be a public company, and they're owners. They have an owner's mentality. When when it's really done well, and we try to do that really well as fools, we're patient, long-term minded, and we feel like owners. And We treat that stock and the system itself like a house that we're going to keep clean because it's our house. By contrast, I think a weakness of things that don't earn profit or can't earn profit is that they are ultimately unsustainable, relying on people to give. Now, the good news is, I hope you give. I try to give, too. I hope you try to give to good organizations that you respect and that you want to sustain. But the truth is that if organizations aren't earning a profit, then they rely on um, your and my altruism. They rely on our generosity, and they hope that we'll be more generous every year. And darn it, when the stock market goes up, I think we can do a good job with that over the course of time to give a little bit more every year. But it's still a weakness of the model. Uh, if you are a CEO of one organization or the other, I think I, anyway, I'm not going to choose for you, I would choose the thing that earns profits. Because then you can reinvest in yourself and grow in a sustainable manner. And so that's one of the things that I love about business. And to get back to my point, at the end of the day, we should be judging all organizations not by whether they're earning a profit or not, but by what their purpose is, how big their purpose is, and how effective they are at fulfilling it. So that's ultimately how I think I score how any organization is done. But the the difference between, I think, the common view, which is that for profit things are greedy and not for profit things are cool, at least in my experience, that doesn't really resonate. Before I continue, if you're trying to find a new home, you definitely don't want to spend time searching through stacks of old files and paperwork before you can get a mortgage. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process that you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. fool Equal Housing Lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLS ConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Before I warm up my second Dickensian paragraph this week, I want to now introduce a little bit of systems thinking. So, I'm I'm looking back at October 7th of 2015 when I did a podcast. Entitled "How Investors Should Think About Thinking," and one of the things I talked about talk about in that podcast. If you want to go back and listen to it, if you didn't get it the first time, is systems thinking, which is when you try to get above a system, look down on it, maybe take a forest level view and see how the cog wheels are spinning, and see um, get above things and look down on them and understand how when one thing strikes another logically a third thing will develop and uh, so when we can see the system which is what i'm going to try to do with you a little bit here i think it makes us not only more able to predict what's going to happen in future which is i think a really key trait of systems thinking but also have a wider perspective and again during this very busy election season uh, i think having a wider perspective is needed so, a little bit of systems thinking. In fact, a few of you either emailed me or tweeted me this summer and said, Hey, Dave, how about talking a little bit more about your worldview? What actually underlies a lot of what you say in the podcast? You talk sometimes about conscious capitalism, these kinds of things. So, I'm responding to that a little bit with some systems thinking before i share it i want to say this is just my thinking this is i'm giving you kind of how i frame things up and why i decide to pick this stock not that one or what i value in business or what i like to talk about on this podcast by no means i'm very conscious that it's a motley world out there i've made that point a number of times on recent podcasts so i'm by no means thinking that i'm definitely right in fact i'm quite sure i'm not going to be right and you can probably help correct my thinking but i do feel like i owe it to my rule breakers And my listeners to kind of show how I think about things and why I make the decisions that I do. So, here's a little systems thinking, and it's about business versus government. That's kind of where I'm headed here. So, one of the first premises that I have is that business moves faster uh, than government because, in general, business has a lot of things that government doesn't have. It has more incentive. Um, You know, entrepreneurs are really driven in a way that I don't think almost any other sector of our society is. the innovation that's expected is you compete um, in business against um, either existing competitors that may be bigger than you, or new upstarts who are using the internet or some new technology like AI to compete against you. You have to move faster. I have a lot of friends who do, do work in the government. They, they frequently tell me they don't think they move very fast. That can be a strength sometimes of government. One thing I learned from the JCOC experience earlier this summer is that how we use the word risk is very different. Those of us in the private sector versus those in the public sector. So, in the public sector, if you're in the military, risk is a really important word and it's something that you really can't screw up on. Um, Because if you make a mistake in a military context, you can really, really harm the world. Whereas if you If your product didn't hit that well, or if you made a bad investment as a risk-taking rule-breaker investor, uh, that's okay. In fact, we kind of expect that. So there's some sometimes some really systemic reasons why uh, government, I think, moves slow and business moves fast. To me, this is fairly self-evident. I don't know if it's controversial for anybody listening. Let me know if you think I'm wrong on this one. But that's premise number one. Premise number two: um, I think business is only further speeding up. I think we've seen examples of this in recent years when we just think about the technological gains uh, just with our phone. Just look how the phone has substantially changed in 30 years from a rotary dial phone to a push-button phone, those were both part of my youth, perhaps yours too, to just um, an early mobile phone based in your car, for the most part, to then Um, slightly less early mobile phones that weren't smart yet, to smartphones, to now supercomputers residing in our pockets that have all the world's knowledge and the ability to contact for free by video almost anybody else in the world. That's just in 30 years. There are very few things that I can think of, and that's just one example I can pick. Um, That that would be analogous in any way if you're thinking from a government context. Now, by the way, a lot of great R&D is performed by the government, which helps accelerate the internet being a good example business. But I think business is only further speeding up. And I think government, arguably, at least in the United States of America, is slowing down. It's really big. It gets bigger. There are many, many people committed. It's just harder to move fast. Andy McAfee, who is a friend of ours from MIT Media Lab, he's been to The Fool before, spoken at Fool HQ, wrote a fine book I'll recommend to you called The Second Machine Age. He talks about how, in fact, technology is now moving so fast, Moore's Law cycling, um, in its 30th, 31st cycle, when you keep doubling things every few years, this happens, that quote, things are getting weird, end quote. In other words, we've now reached a point where there's just remarkable amounts of innovation across so many different contexts, from genomics right through to how you and I find entertainment, which today is uh, everything from Netflix to video games but now increasingly there will be virtual reality all kind of, i mean there's so many changes going on that things are getting weird it's happening fast and robin hansen who on this podcast a few weeks ago talked about when robots rule the earth approximately 100 years from now in his mind but he talked about how you really can't stop innovation this is really true as he spoke about this you know somebody invents something and the world changes. There's no central control that governs um, slowing down the pace of technology or when something might or might not be invented. Stuff just happens these days, and all the rest of us are reacting. So that's premise number two. So, again, I think business moves faster than government, and I think business is only moving faster and faster. Number three, also part of my systems thinking, I think the best talent will naturally flow, for the most part, the best human talent to the best opportunities. And when the best talent does flow through to companies like Google, those companies go on to win. It's a very predictable, Uh, thing. And uh, and I think, given the dynamism of the business world, this is not surprising why, for me anyway, I think the best and the brightest these days tend to go into business, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. It's not to say that's the only destination or that everybody does. No, not nearly. Uh, There are many choices that greet our college graduates these days. But if you look at just the growth of the private sector and all the wealth in the stock market, in fact, the United States these days is more than half the world's stock market value. More than half of the world's total equity value resides just in the US stock market. And that's a remarkable thing to be able to say here in a country that in some ways feels like its morale is low right now. Point number four um, ultimately, based on the previous three systems thinking points, I kind of see business eclipsing and outrunning government. Um, Government, by the way, at least in the United States of America these days, is pretty much at all-time lows. If you look at things like congressional approval ratings or even approval ratings of this president, a president that that I I like for the most part, we're seeing people basically say this system is not working. And I think it's not surprising that we don't feel that it's working. I think it's because we've gotten used to often here in the United States, perhaps your country too, if you're not American, things running better when the trains are being run not by um, Amtrak, or in our case here in Washington D.C., the Metro, which has a billion dollars underwater and having trouble finding new riders because it's not able to move quickly enough as millennials start saying, "Hey, I'll just take Lyft. I don't need the Metro." And so these things end up happening. Versus when they're run, I think, by for-profit, incented, often driven by visionary entrepreneurs who are trying to come up with better solutions. There's no surprise to me and my way of thinking that Federal Express these days. Has had a lot of the government's work outsourced to it. It's just more dependable and more cost efficient. And I'm about to head back to Dickens, but I can't not think about the blues and the buffs and that mentality that if it's all about just shouting down the other party, who really is being served by that? And maybe my final systems thinking point here it is, number five what are the implications of this going forward? What are the predictions that you and I can make about this if you agree with the previous four points? And my answer is, I'm not fully sure. So, my final bit of systems thinking is, I'm not really sure where the system leads us, but I do like to think about the system. So, maybe I've helped you think a little bit about the system, again, getting out of the context of fall 2016, and look at what's really happening and where it's likely to take us. I mean, I think that there are some guesses we can make. Things like intellectual property. In fact, Motley Fool headquarters is just a couple of blocks from the Patent and Trademark Office. And How long it takes to get a patent process these days, usually a few years at a time when everything's speeding up so much, starts making me think, you shouldn't spend a lot on patent and intellectual property protection in a faster-moving world. That's just a a light observation. But really, this concluding point for my little systems thinking is to invite you to help me think about the implications of these things. Back to Dickens. So I have two more paragraphs to read. I'm just going to share both of them with a quick point about each. Hoping you enjoy this view from 180 years ago of a country a little bit different from the United States of America, but in some ways, not so much. And I think, like most great authors, Dickens is a pretty timeless fellow. So The next paragraph begins, of course, it was essentially and indispensably necessary that each of these powerful parties should have its chosen organ and representative. And accordingly, there were two newspapers in the town, the Edensville Gazette and the Edensville Independent, the former advocating blue principles and the latter conducted on grounds decidedly buff. Fine newspapers they were, such leading articles and such spirited attacks our worthless contemporary, the Gazette, that disgraceful and dastardly journal, the Independent, that false and scurrilous print, the Independent, that vile and slanderous calumniator, the Gazette. These and other spirit-stirring denunciations were strewn plentifully over the columns of each in every number and excited feelings of the most intense delight and indignation in the bosoms of the townspeople." And my quick observation about that one, which I think is probably self evident, is that doesn't that happen too in our modern day world where it seems as if often what began as journalistic vehicles end up having to swim to the blue or swim to the buff and define themselves there? And then you end up with kind of a possibly a toxic atmosphere where you have the media, the big media themselves, kind of shouting at each other, the blues and the buffs. Again, who is really being served? By that system, and if you are a thinking man or woman, if you're a fool, how much time do you really want to spend listening or being influenced by that? Um, Maybe I'm not the only one, or maybe I am. But I, I'm going to make a personal confession here. I haven't watched a single minute of any of the televised presidential debates. And you know what? While I'm not endorsing the action for everybody else, I don't feel like I've missed a lot. Okay. Now, in our final paragraph from Dickens, and then. What I think I'm going to try to I'm going to bring us to a close, and have a little bit of homework for you between now and next week's podcast, which will be mailbag. But I'm going to share one of my favorite thoughts, and I hope you like it to close this podcast. But first, uh, that third Dickens paragraph: Mister Pickwick, with his usual foresight and sagacity, had chosen a peculiarly desirable moment for his visit to the borough. Never was such a contest known. The Honorable Samuel Slumkey of Slumkey Hall was the blue candidate. And Horatio Fiskin, Esq. of Fiskin Lodge, near Eatonswill, had been prevailed upon by his friends to stand forward on the buff interest. The Gazette warned the electors of Eatonswill that the eyes not only of England, but of the whole civilized world were upon them. And the Independent imperatively demanded to know, whether the constituency of Eaton's Will were the grand fellows they had always taken them for, or, base and servile fools, undeserving alike the name of Englishmen and the blessings of freedom, never had such a commotion agitated the town before. And my quick reflection on that paragraph is that when you have this many people up in arms and you pit people against each other to the extent that they have been over the last two years, it does start to feel almost like, Armageddon, whether the Blues or the Buffs will be elected. It starts becoming, as a political entity itself, incredibly self-important, as if your future and my future are so dependent on the votes cast in the next few weeks. Now, I realize it's important, and by no means at any point in my time with you this week, do I want to downplay the significance of democracy and the decisions that we make. But I am going to agree with Dickens that it is natural for the people in the town of Eatonsville, and maybe for my fellow Americans to think that it's all about this thing, when I think that's very short-term thinking, and at least in my own experience, I like to be with Dickens a little bit above it and a little bit observing of it and realizing that if we can do that, if we can stand it at arm's length, we start to be less controlled by it ourselves and a little bit more, I think, independent long-term thinkers. All right, well, I said I was going to share with you one of my favorite thoughts. So, to close my pre election special, and I can't imagine doing this unless maybe it's four years from now and we're back here with a little bit more Dickens, needing to hear it once again the blues and the buffs. But I want to share with you a framework that I occasionally mention in cocktail parties. And now I'm going public with it, with you, with all of us, because. I hope you like this as much as I do. So, I think at a time when it's natural for people to be pitted against each other, and for there to be blue talk and buff talk, I think it's much more helpful for us to remember that at least for those of us who are in America, and I realize not every fool is, but for those of us who are, that we're all Americans. And we share far more things together than then we feel apart. But I want to go one step further. You know, one thing that we've done at our organization here, The Motley Fool, that I bet you've done for yours and seen done, in fact, many public companies that we invest in do this, is they look at and articulate their values. We at The Motley Fool say, what are the core values of The Motley Fool? And I won't spend extra time this week talking about them. But we know what they are. And if you ask Motley Fool employees, you know, what are our core values, they can do a pretty good job off the top of their head saying what they are. That may well be true of your organization. I hope it is. And really, the best things, I think schools often get this well. In fact, I think aspects of the government get this really well. Having a true sense and an understanding of what your core values are. You know what I think we need in the fall of 2016? I think we need to be reminded as Americans, that America, too, has its core values. And I think our discussion of them and our thinking about what those are, if I asked you right now, looking at our country and its history and its present, what are three to five core values that all Americans share? Now, of course, you're going to have a different list from mine and the next person's, but it is that thought and, I think, that conversation about what those things are that is far more important than this election or any other, and of course those values change over time, and that's part of what makes values fascinating. Over the course of our 23 years of Motley Fool history, we've made maybe every five or six years little tuck-ins or tweaks or outright changes of what we think our values are right now. So I think this bomb that I'm going to share with you to close our pre-election special, I'm going to encourage you to ask yourself, starting right there, what do I think? are this country's three to five core values. And then I, I would encourage you to ask your spouse or partner, your kids, your friends, what do you think our country's core values are? And it is through that conversation that we gain a greater understanding of each other. And ultimately, perhaps, if this ever hit you know, the level of a presidential debate, or if it ever became a national conversation, which is what I would love it one day to become, we would have a greater sense and a shared sense together of what, in fact, we do think our, let's say, five core values in the United States of America are. I think the greatest companies have a great sense of their own culture. I think the greatest countries will also share that same sense of shared values. And that's what I wish for you and for me here as we proceed into November. Well, I mentioned I was going to give you a little homework. I would love to hear from you. RBI at fool.com is our email address. You can tweet us at At RBI Podcast on Twitter. I would love to be influenced by and to hear what you think, the three to five core values. You can keep them as words or short phrases, um, because maybe next week in mailbag, I'll present my best shot at articulating what I've heard from you. And I think that'd be a fun way to kick off next week's mailbag. And in fact, to help pull these thoughts together and make it easier to process and follow, let's use a hashtag. Let's go with hashtag USA Core Values. Pretty straightforward. I'm guessing there are not a lot of uses of that hashtag previous to this podcast, but we'll start it up with Rule Breaker Investing this week and my fellow fools, so please use that. I will really look forward to seeing what you think. Oh, and I should mention, it's not just for Americans. Sometimes, as has been proven throughout history, I think of a certain Frenchman in the 19th century, foreigners give us a better view of our country than we have ourselves. So, anything goes, anyone can join. So Again, we rarely assign homework at Rule Breaker Investing, but this podcast, I wanted to do that this week and get you thinking about that, because I think that's the most important thought to have. Thanks for listening. Fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.